Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. There's a poem that begins, I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all of our mistakes and all of our heartaches and all of our sickening sin could be dropped on the floor like a shabby old coat and never be put on again. Wouldn't that be great? The good thing is, that's exactly what the gospel offers us. And we're going to be looking at a real-life example of that in the next couple of weeks. So as I said, the last time that we were together, the reactions of the people to Jesus separated them into four different groups. The convinced, the contrary, the confused, and the contemplative, all of which are represented in this chapter. And those responses comprise the universal pattern of reactions to Christ from the first century to this present day. We'll be looking at the last two groups today. Look at verse 44 with me. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? The next group we will look at is the confused. The officers or temple guards were kind of a police force consisting of Levites, and they were responsible for maintaining order on the temple grounds. And unlike those, you know, the crowd who either rejected or believed in Christ, the officers of the temple police were confused by him. If you recall, they had been sent several days earlier by the chief priests and Pharisees to arrest Jesus. But when they returned empty-handed, their superiors demanded of them just one question. Why did you not bring him? It is interesting that the officers did not claim that the, the crowd prevented them from arresting Jesus, so that may have fact have been the case. Instead, they expressed bewilderment and wonderment, declaring, never has a man spoken the way that this man speaks. Now keep in mind, these guys were religiously trained Levites, and yet Jesus' words left them stunned. These guys have been listening to teachers all of their lives, and it was like, blah, 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 blah. Think Charlie Brown's teacher when she talks to him. And while they did not accept him as their Messiah, neither did they openly reject him. In all truthfulness, They did not know what to do with him. Caught between the power and grace of his message and the hatred of their leaders, they were paralyzed into inactivity. They could have said, we went up to arrest him, but we ended up being arrested by him. For we have never heard anyone talk with such generosity, such clarity, and such authority. In ridiculing the crowd, the Pharisees implicitly appealed to the officers' pride and desire for prestige. And so the officers now had a crucial decision they had to make. They could either reject Jesus and be applauded by the apostate religious establishment, or they could believe in him and be castigated with the redeemed. John does not record for us what choice the officers ultimately made. We can only hope that Jesus' words found good soil in their hearts, and we will one day get to meet them. Verse 48, please. The Pharisees continue their inquisition with, Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? 
But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. When you study the scripture, you will find that with the exception of Nicodemus, the Pharisees are always hostile to Jesus in John's gospel. Now later, some would come to believe in him. Most notably, the zealous Pharisee Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul the Apostle. Now, the Pharisees viewed themselves as a spiritual elitist. They were men who thought that they were above the possibility of being wrong about any religious matter. In their minds, only those who were gullible, uneducated, and simple-minded could be deceived by Jesus' claims. Their arrogant implication was that if Jesus really was the Messiah, the religious experts would have been the first to recognize him. But here's their critical mistake. They determined right and wrong in terms of power and not on the basis of divine truth. When they were challenged, they pointed to their diplomas rather than pointing to the scripture. They were, in essence, religious snobs. Do you know what a snob is? Heard the true story about a boy in New England that captures this perfectly. His father was a professor of English literature at a large college, and so to follow his father's footsteps, he also went to a New England college. As a matter of fact, he went to the New England college. He went to Harvard, or Harvard, as they say. His father started getting letters and phone calls and began to realize, my son is changing. In about 12 weeks, he began to speak with a thick Boston accent. And he no longer wanted to talk about the Red Sox or the Celtics. Now he wanted to talk about international policies and how he was arguing against the government and things like that. He was brilliant. I mean, after all, he was 18 years old. <laughs> so his father began to notice a sort of airhead dogmatism that has now enraptured his boy. And it concerned him that Harvard was changing him instead of building him. He waited for him to come home from Christmas, and when he arrived, he was wearing a slightly large, slightly rumpled tweed suit. He's got a pipe hanging out of the corner of his mouth and extends his hands and says, Hello, Father. The old professor shakes his hand and says, Great to see you. So they come home and they sit down. There the boy is puffing on his pipe, and he begins to wax eloquent about international policy and why everyone has it wrong but him. His father listens patiently and then pops open a box of cigars. He says, son, you like that pipe. You might like these cigars more. His son looked at the band around the cigar, and it was a $5 cigar, which at that time was one of the best. The boy took it and bit the end off of it and said, did you notice how the end just popped off? It didn't crunch. That's the mark of a good cigar. It's been properly rolled. The dad said that is correct. He then lit it and said, did you notice how it didn't fire up on the end? <clears throat> a good cigar lights so, uh, slowly. You may also notice the bouquet. It's not sweet and it's not bitter. The father said, that's amazing all the things you've learned since you left. Satisfied, the son puffs on it and he says, also look at the, the end of the cigar. Did you notice how the ash just hangs? It doesn't fall off because it's a tight cigar. The old professor replied, that's a good observation, especially seeing how it's just a 25-cent cigar. So I said, what are you talking about? It says right here on the wrapper, $5. Father said, I know that's because I unwrapped and rewrapped all of them. You're smoking a 25-cent cigar 
and a $5 shell. And then his father went into what used to really irritate his son. His dad settled back and began to talk in the third person in his professor voice. And so the boy just had to settle back with his two-bit stogie. And his father began, You know, son, back in Roman culture, they put men in caste systems. You had your emperor, you had your senators, you had your praetorian guard, you had the wealthy, you had the craftsmen, and then you had your soldiers. And at the bottom, you had people that were just common laborers. They were of no nobility, and they had a title. They were called sin nobilis, which means without nobility. He said, but every once in a while, one who was a seen nobilis would flaunt himself as if he were of nobility. When that happened, they would change his name from seen nobilis to a shortened phrase, that of seen knob. And that's where our term snob comes from. He then looked eye to eye at this boy and said, the term snob is one who has a shell but has no real substance, kind of like this cigar. And the boy wrote that story, he said, that little story penetrated him like an iron shaft. And he said, my life took a turn. As I saw the greatness was not something you wear or smoke, it is something that you are. He finished by saying, the thing that did the most to me was it showed me an attribute of my father that I never knew. He said, I did not think my father was mad at me, disappointed maybe, but not mad. He said, all I could think about was my little wizened father hunched over two boxes of cigars, methodically wrapping and rewrapping each one of them. He did that just to teach me that I had a $5 shell and a two-bit heart. That is a perfect description of the Pharisees. They had a $5 shell and a two-bit heart. One of their number, however, was not so certain. Nicodemus had not openly believed that he could not easily dismiss or ignore Jesus or his teaching. Therefore, he offered a reasonable defense for Jesus without exposing his true leanings. We'll see that in our next slide. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look. For no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. The Pharisees claimed that the religious leaders had unanimously rejected Jesus was in fact not true. For see that the prominent rabbi Nicodemus from chapter 3, who is perhaps the most preeminent teacher of all Israel, was the most notable exception. He was probably not a disciple of Jesus at this point, though he would later become one. But his mind was open to the Lord's claims. It is true that Nicodemus did not openly defend Jesus, but he did raise a procedural point in his favor, reminding his colleagues, our law does not judge man unless it first hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? Even the despised Romans didn't condemn people without a hearing. I think Nicodemus' progression is sort of a picture of how the salvation process often works. As we progress from darkness to light. In John 3, Nicodemus, when he first came to Jesus, he was in the midnight hour of his soul. Here in John 7, not yet sure who Jesus is, he is in the twilight of transition as he pleads for fairness on the part of his fellow Pharisees. 
But in John chapter 19, we'll see Nicodemus in the daylight of salvation. Let me ask you, when did the sun finally rise on Nicodemus' understanding? It was at the cross in John 19.39. Let me give you some advice when you talk to people about the Lord. Don't get tangled up in evolution, philosophy, or existential mind games. Keep focused on what Christ Jesus did on the cross and how he rose from the dead. That's where people are going to see the light. And so turn every conversation, every debate, and every discussion back to the cross. All you have to say is Jesus died, rose again, and wants to be your Savior, King, and friend. And so now, what are you going to do with him? But the Pharisees were completely closed-minded to this truth. For no sooner had they denied that any of the rulers had believed on Jesus, that Nicodemus, one of their very number, spoke up for him. And no sooner had they expressed scorn for those who were ignorant of the law, that they were chided by Nicodemus for their own disregard of it. Nicodemus rightly says, Does our law condemn anyone? without first hearing him and seeing what he has to say. They refused to admit that Nicodemus was right in asking a fair trial, but the only thing they could answer him with was by way of ridicule. They were like, Hey, Nick, are you also from Galilee? We thought you were more sophisticated than that. Don't you know that no prophet has ever come out of Galilee? Actually, they were wrong on this point also, as Micah, Elijah, and Jonah all came out of Galilee. But still, they ridiculed him in their elitist ignorance. That is an ancient debate trick. It's called ad hominem, in which when you cannot answer the argument, you instead attack the speaker. This being the political season, you may actually see some of that, believe it or not. Look at verse 53 with me. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. In the last verse of chapter 7, read that following the Feast of Tabernacles, that every man went into his own house, except for one man. Not having a house, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is nestled on the slopes of Mount of Allah's in order to commune with his father. So frequently did Jesus do this that Judas would later know right where to find him at the time of his betrayal. That Jesus, the creator of all things, had no place of his own to stay, strikingly illustrates the humiliation and condensation of the incarnation. Say that fast five times. During his ministry, Jesus would say to a would-be follower, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm not sure we truly appreciate how much Jesus humbled himself during his time on earth. Of all religious figures throughout all of history, Jesus stands unique among them all. Notice in verse 2 it says that when Jesus taught, he sat down to teach. That's how it was in Bible days. The teacher would sit and the people would stand. It's all been reversed in our day. Maybe starting next Sunday, 
We should just get rid of the chairs and try that for a while. It would amuse me to see you all standing around hopping on one foot to the other like a bunch of six-year-olds who need to go to the bathroom. But as I've told you, the Lord is still working on me. Look at verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. If you have Bibles with you, some of you will notice sort of little brackets there with something saying something to the effect that the oldest and the best manuscripts do not contain John 7:53 through 8:11. You may have read that in a fine print of a footnote. I don't want to bore you with the details, but the earliest manuscripts we have, the earliest Greek manuscripts we have, in the Gospel of John, this passage isn't in it. But I can say... The scholars whom I trust the best would say this is a true incident from the life of Christ. And it was probably not written by John, though, but attached here by the early church at some other time. But it has what C.S. Lewis calls the queer ring of truth about it. And so I believe it to be inspired scripture. Why would I think that? It is so parallel, so completely parallel, parallel to the way in which Jesus treats social outcasts like this. When we see how he treats Mary Magdalene, when we see how he treats lepers, and so when we see how he reacts to people like this, it is so clearly parallel to his character that we can trust it. I like what F.B. Meyer says about this. He writes, The passage has been the subject of much controversy, but there is no possibility of accounting for the excerpt on the supposition other than this incident really took place. It reveals in our Lord's character such tenderness, wisdom, hatred of sin, and insight into the heart of man that it is impossible to suppose that any man could have invented this story. I agree with that. So what we do now is we look at it and we say, what do we learn from this incident? Here's what we learn from this incident. It's an example of another passage in our Bible. This is an illustration of something the Old Testament predicted about the Messiah. In Isaiah 42.3 it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, till he brings forth judgment to victory. What does that mean? It means Jesus combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has never seen its like. He is the most absolutely unsurpassed, integrated personality. He was the most balanced and wise human being who has ever lived. He is not just a kind of a compromise halfway between strong and tender, but rather he is just and righteous to the nth degree, but he is also compassionate and melting in your mouth gentle to the nth degree. These two traits don't fight in him. Instead, they unite in him. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he will not put out. So he brings forth judgment to victory. What that means is here is a person of absolute power and majesty. He will bring forth judgment to victory. He will one day win over all evil. But in the meantime... He is so sensitive and so tender to a bruised heart, a broken heart, just held together by the filament, a flickering soul just ready to go out. But in his hands it won't be harmed. Instead it will be healed. 
This principle is illustrated in the way that he treated this woman. We're going to see next week how he deals so very gently with her. And that teaches us that he also deals gently with us. And therefore it teaches us that we should deal gently with one another. Let's see what else the passage teaches. First of all, let's look at a, for a moment at the problem that's posed here. We're told twice in verse 3 and 4 this woman was caught. In the old King James it said she was taken in adultery. And twice here it says she was caught. I'll get back to this in a minute. But that means literally she must have been caught. According to Jewish law, she could not have been charged unless at least two eyewitnesses saw her doing it. While Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 both declare adultery to be a capital offense punishable by death, due to the severity of the sentence, there were safeguards put in place to protect the innocent. That is, there could be no doubt about any of the details. The evidence had to be conclusive and unmistakable. In fact, there had to be a number of witnesses to the actual act of immorality. And their stories had to corroborate perfectly. History tells us that one couple was set free because the witnesses who observed the adulterous act couldn't name the tree under which it took place. Consequently, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us adultery would be punishable by death, would be punished by death on the average of only once every seven years. Not to put too fine a point on it, but we need to understand what this means. She was not caught coming out of a room. She was not found in a compromising position. She was not even lying in bed with someone. But she was actually caught in the very act. So she was caught. Of course, the first question that should immediately come to our minds is, where was the man at? The last I heard, it took two to tango, as it were. And so if you catch someone in the act of adultery, you should have a pretty good idea who the man is. So the story begins early one morning as Jesus was teaching at the temple. Then a group of angry scribes and Pharisees, who were the rigid technicians of Scripture, they interrupt the Lord's lesson. And they did so by thrusting this woman before him and all the other listeners. She had been caught in the very act of adultery. Because of that, she was perfect bait for their trap. Addressing him with mock politeness as teacher or rabbi, they go in for the kill. Once again, under these conditions, the obtaining of evidence in adultery would be almost impossible with a situation itself not a setup. We are justified in supposing that the liaison had been arranged perhaps by the very man who committed the adultery with her. You would not be able to accidentally catch a couple in the act of adultery very easily. So we have to wonder if the man was never indicted because he was likely part of the scheme. There's even been some speculation by scholars that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, whatever the case. The arrangement must have, been, must have involved the posting of witnesses either in the room or at the keyhole. The law required that both parties be stoned, not just the woman. And so it does seem pretty suspicious that he was set free. The scribes and Pharisees handled this in a brutal fashion. 
even the way they interrupted the Lord's teaching and pushed the woman into the midst of the crowd. Look at verse 5 with me. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Once again, those who apprehended the woman had certainly seen him too since he had been seized in the very act. But if justice was all that was sought, why bring the woman to Jesus at all? Why not try her in their own courts where such cases would normally be tried? Jesus was not a judge or a member of the Sanhedrin, nor was there any legal difficulty that would necessitate consulting a rabbi. It was an open and shut case. We see by these things that the Pharisees' motive was obvious. They were merely using the woman in an attempt to trap Jesus. There was something far more important to them than seeing justice done. They were testing him so that they may have grounds for accusing him. Admittedly, theirs was a thorny question. Why would I say that? As I said, the law of Moses condemned adulterers to be stoned publicly. But Roman law at that time reserved execution for Roman courts. That means the Jews did not have the authority to stone the woman without Roman permission. So we see that it was a perfect setup. To honor God's law, Jesus would have to incur the wrath of Rome. To submit to Roman law, Jesus would have to ignore the law of God. But Jesus is not being asked whether she is guilty or not because that's already been ascertained. Now he's being asked about what the penalty should be. These people come, they point to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They point out the fact that Moses said that adultery, which by the way is any type of sexual activity outside of marriage, is punishable by execution. They come, it says, to trap him. Here's why it was a marvelous trap. I mean, this is a, a, this is a terrific trap. Because they know he is stuck in a sense between two issues and two different concerns. On the one hand, the life of the woman... And on the other hand, the divine law of Moses. Because you see, they knew that Jesus was the consummate teacher about compassion, grace, forgiveness, and tenderness. He said, the kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, is entered by grace and forgiveness. Therefore, they thought they had him because he said that. But on the other hand, he said on the Sermon on the Mount that the law of Moses that not, was from God, not even a jot or tittle would pass away until all had been fulfilled. So they said, we finally got him. What if he comes and he says, well, yes, you must obey the law of Moses. That's what the law of Moses says. Then we'll say, well, then, here's your Messiah. He says, I'm meek and lowly in heart, and come to me and I'll give you rest. Sure, come to him with your sins and he'll execute you. That's some great Messiah you've got there. On the other hand, what if he says, oh, no, 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 she has to be forgiven. We can't punish her. Then we can say, he says he's from God, and the law of Moses is from God, but he's not from God. Otherwise, there wouldn't be this contradiction. They thought they had him. You see, with devilish ingenuity, they had come to a crux. They had come to a problem that really up to this time that neither society nor religion has ever been able to handle. It's never been able to solve it. Because if you have compassion, you relativize morality. But if you have absolute morality, you can crush people. What does Jesus do? What Jesus does is absolutely remarkable. 
Come back next week and we'll talk about it. Father, we do thank you for your word. I am so thankful that you will not bruise a reed, Lord, or put out a wick that is almost out. You are so gentle and tender with us. And I pray, Father, that this day you would reveal to us the things that we need to do to get right with you and whatever that means. You are such a wonderful Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This being the first day of the month, I ask John Viscop and Pastor John come up for communion.